This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is two of my colleagues, Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and also Gaurav Sinha, Associate Director of Modern Alpha and Asset Allocation at Wisdom Tree. Gaurav and I are both registered representatives for side fund services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views or guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, uh, lots uh, going on. We've got positive tone to the markets here. Uh, we've been breaking through some resistance over 2,800. How are you thinking about what's been going on? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um and we've really bounced back on uh, consumer sentiment today, the preliminary um, uh, data that we got on um, University of Michigan uh, confirms what we got on the conference board, that the big drop in consumer sentiment uh, was really uh, coincided with the shutdown of the government. Um, not, a, not a good thing. Uh, not a good thing for Trump either, but it's over. And, um, you know, we've had a bounce back there. Now, not a, not a you know the economic numbers are still coming in for the first quarter, which we have two more weeks uh, to go in the low ones. Uh, some people think it might actually be below one. No one thinks it's going to be below zero, uh, and that it's going to be bouncing back to the low twos tomorrow. Um, but just the fact that uh, some of the really negative uh, fears that we had earlier have disappeared, I think, is one of the things that is sending the S and P high. Now, actually, the it is actually 20, it's about 21, 28, 25 is often what people are talking about is resistance, uh, uh, levels. Um, uh, we're at, uh, 28, 28 now. So, you know, we would need a really strong day to bring, you know, to bring that about. And then it looks where we're only 4% away from all time high. Um, now I, I claim that, the, uh, the market's going to be challenged by low increase in earnings. Uh, but it is looking at the interest rates of 2.6 on the 10-year with no upward pressure. As you all know, big big news next week, we have an FOMC report. Now, of course, there won't be an increase. We know they are, quote, going to be patient. Uh, but there's going to be a new dot plot. And, um, you know, my feeling is is their long-run dot plot is too aggressive still. Um, I'm hoping they lower the longer one from two and uh, three-quarters down to two-and-a-half. Because honestly, I think the Fed funds rate should be about two right now. It's 2.4. Uh, we just were pushing uh, too hard. The market told us that in December and January, and the Fed is laid off, and we're stuck with a kind of a little bit higher than we should be. But that's not anything that should really, you know, substantially derail the economy. Yeah. So the we, we've heard the the you know. Point that the earnings growth is going to be one of the, the not you're not going to have fantastic earnings growth this year. So if you think about the the possible catalysts, like is there what are is, are there anything on the horizon that would lead to a more favorable outlook, or, or how do you think well, about the dynamics? Again, uh, you know, I said uh, the market is expecting a resolution of the China. I think, in fact, that's a lot of the strength. I think there will be a pop, um, but I, I think that that's built into the market. I don't think it's a sustained pop that will continue with things higher. Um, although, if we get some, you know, if it exceeds our expectation in the sense that uh, we really do do better on protection of technology transfers, and if they lower some of the tariffs on us uh, in addition, in other words, more than just a cosmetic change, which is, 
obviously what uh, what we got with the NAFTA agreement um, uh, that could be very positive and and I think would would drive uh, uh, the market uh, forward. Um, uh, I would be surprised, but very, but honestly, very pleased if we could uh, get something like that. Very good. Any other comments on interest rates or things around the world? No, I mean again, uh, you know that ten year it just shows so much strength. No, no, no fears of what's coming. Um, you know, even with a little bit of the tightening of the labor market that we, uh, you know, actually saw last month, uh, participation still seems to be enough to absorb. That's the key thing. As the monthly rates, as our monthly employment rate goes on, uh, will we get the participation rising to absorb 200,000 new jobs uh, a month? Um, can we join the rest of uh, the developed world in actually pushing our participation rate up despite the aging of uh, the labor force? I mean, uh, uh, Federal Reserve Chief Powell mentioned that on, on 60 Minutes last Sunday um, um, that we could do better. We have done a bit better under the Trump administration. Uh, if we can do better yet, uh, this this expansion can continue to roll. There's no question. Very good. Thanks for some comments to start us off here. Thank you very much. We're going to bring on one of our uh, former co-hosts. He hasn't been on in a little while, but it's glad to have him back here today. Um, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architects, on the phone. Wes, you're doing a conference here coming up through the Democratized Quant Conference. Uh, it's good to have you to tell us a little bit about, give us a preview, a sneak preview of what's coming up for people this week. Sure, and uh, excited to be back on. And uh, again, sorry, couldn't be in studio. But um, yeah, so the Democratized Quant Conference is really piggybacking on uh, Villanova's academic finance conference. And the basic idea is kind of fulfill our firm mission, and I think some of you guys believe in as well, which is just to try to empower investors through education. And we've modeled this conference off of the academic conference where traditionally, you know, a, a practitioner conference is going to have someone go up there and talk about their product, and they're always trying to sell you something, where the, the concept here is let's have a, a practitioner actually present a, an idea and we'll have an actual debate about it as opposed to a sales pitch. Um, yeah, I think it'll be exciting. We've got a you know gold-plated uh, menu ahead, and I, I think people learn a lot and have some fun. Uh, are there panel sessions that you're most looking forward to, things that uh, you've seen the papers, you've seen the debates? Like where, What are the, the, the big topics of discussion this year? Yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, they're all going to be interesting. I think the first one will be uh, probably one of the mo most interesting. We've got uh, Ben Johnson from Morningstar and Eric Balchunas from uh, Bloomberg. And, and the way it's structured is the first person presents, and then the second person is kind of meant to be a little bit antagonistic in the sense that, that you're not supposed to just agree with the first person. So I think th those two are thought leaders in, in, in the ETF industry, and they're going to be talking about the future of the ETF landscape. And I think it'll be a good debate of, you know, are we going to go to zero fee for everything? You know, where are the new products coming from, what have you? Um, another one that's also, I think, going to be super interesting and probably a little geeky is, is one by uh, uh, Antti Ilman from uh, AQR and Corey Hofstein from Think Newfound. And the topic there is going to be who is on the other side. And the basic question they're trying to address in, the, in debate is, okay, you people out there are so smart and doing these trades that you tell us work historically, but we want to know who's the quote-unquote dummy on the other side of these trades, and can we identify these individuals or institutions? Um, and on one half of the debate, the, the answer is yes, um, you know, but I don't think it's, it's so clear-cut. And, and I think the, the most entertaining one uh, probably going to have the most spark flies and the you know the most intellectual juices get flowing is when actually Lee Chan will be debating uh, Jim Kalari uh, on his on this new asset pricing model called the ZCAPM. You you you're putting exciting. me on the negative antagonistic side. I need some backup. <laughs> well, hey, I, I needed someone very smart to uh, you know debate Jim, who's a uh, you know pretty distinguished academic professor who's published. You know, God knows how many articles. He's very um, nice. He's uh, sent me emails yeah. or extra materials, but I hope to have a good debate. I've seen I a new side of great. Lee Chen as she's preparing, and she's getting her, her, her claws ready. 
yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it'll be fun, and um, yeah, and again, the whole the whole spirit of this conference is you almost want to inspire debate and and inspire you know someone that's systematically put in place to say no, actually, I don't agree with that. You know, even if they might agree with most of it, uh, you're never really going to learn anything if everyone's just like, yeah, I agree with that. So uh, this is going to be structured to kind of inspire disagreement and hopefully, uh, you know, everyone can get closer to understanding intellectual truth. Lichen, what's the what's the paper that you're talking about, the, the 30-second version of what, uh, what he's trying to say? It's about return dispersion, and is that an independent uh, you know, factor from all the factors we've looked at. I think it's very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting paper. Um, the, the results is, you know, a little bit opposite of what somebody else found. So I'm going to have a lot of questions and uh, things to learn. The question, who's right? The- <laughs> I, um, I, I, I'm not there to take sides, but uh, to learn. I think uh, that's what, what the conference is about, right? Very good. Uh, what... Wes, how, what's, uh, there's another panel, What's Up With Momentum? You do a lot of work on yep. momentum. I'm sure you have uh, some, some views on that. What, any thoughts on that, that panel yeah, and the discussion so, there? Yeah, so that one's, um, you know, Andy Birkin, um, he's a PhD, I think, from Caltech or something. So he's obviously, you know, got a way higher IQ than probably everyone in the room. Um, and he, he's going to be in there, you know, to a certain extent defending momentum. So I'm probably not the right person to debate him because we're going to probably agree on a lot of things. Um, but I have Tommy Johnson, who's uh, she's a Ph.D. He writes a lot of times on her blog. And, and she also somewhat agrees with what Andy's probably going to be saying. But, again, she's in a position to be the person that says, well, what about this and that? Um, so, so even though she may agree with uh, this idea that, hey, momentum seems to be busted, but you know, there's probably reasons why, and, and we still think it, it can work long term. Um, she's going to be there to tell our Caltech physics PhD that um, maybe he's wrong. So I think that one will be uh, it, definitely exciting, and, and I'm sure a lot of people in the audience will want to interject and, you know, have their own opinions on things. Um, and then the the other thing that's going to be cool, and it, it'll be less on the kind of intense research academic debate style is, you know, towards the end, we, we have the one panel with um, uh, you, Jeremy. We're actually going to be interviewing uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy, who's been in our business for shoot, uh, three decades now. And yeah, I think that'll be super interesting just to get perspective from someone who's been there and done that 100 times over. Um, and then finally, we're going to end with Annie Duke, who we actually interviewed on, on the podcast there. Uh, you know, she's former famous poker player, published uh, Thinking in Bets, and we actually talked today, this morning, I had a chat with her, and she was going to present originally, but she's like, no, nah, let's do it, let's do a, a talk. So so now I'm going to actually be interviewing her, and we're going to be talking about how a lot of her insights from that new book uh, actually apply directly to the financial industry and how we can take lessons from that to uh, you know help investors make better decisions. Yeah, I like her, and I think I saw it on Twitter this week, um, somebody talking about her and... and uh and, and maybe Mobison, who's written on it, saying, mm-hmm. you know, if, the difference between skill and luck is can you lose on purpose? You know, when you think about these factor strategies, mm-hmm. can you lose on purpose and design a strategy that's designed to lose? And if not, then that is somewhat skill. You know, you're, you're, if you can't do yeah. that. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and so we'll be talking that. And then one of the things that I thought she wanted to do, which I think is a good idea, is she's talked so much about the book, and, and obviously people can go read it. But she really wanted to angle on on doing some things that are outside of the, the actual book. So I don't want to release all the the secrets here because I don't want to break her party. But uh, so, so so hopefully that conversation will be insightful to those who are who are Annie Duke fans and who have read the you know book twenty times like all of us have. So uh, I'm excited about that, and I think it'll be a great way to end the event. And and how do people get involved for next year? They they hear about it a little bit now this year on our podcast. How do they how do they get involved? Yep. So um, one of the issues is the event, at least as it currently stands, is capacity constrained, um, which you know just the nature of uh, we're partnering up with Villanova and they they can't you know take on hundreds of people, and, and so so we we max the capacity up to a hundred this year. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it, but, uh, you know, it, it certainly seems like there's huge demand for this, uh, you know, because we've already had to turn away, you know, plenty of people. 
So hopefully next year we can, you know, expand the, the footprint and allow more folks to go. Um, but one of the things we are going to try to do this year is we're going to try to videotape a, a lot of the, you know, kind of key points and do some follow-on interviews and hopefully kind of create a package where it's like the highlights from the event. So, you know, someone who who's unable to attend can at least, you know, gain some insights from, uh, you know, from the, the knowledge that's being shared there, even though we unfortunately just don't have capacity to accommodate everybody. Understood. Well, thanks for coming. Give us a quick preview. We want to get you back in the studio here soon. Thanks for, uh, for coming on and sharing some. Yeah, you got it. And yeah, look forward to getting back down there. I just uh, need to stop working so hard uh, and going back down there and having some fun with uh, you and the crew. Very good. We've been talking with Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. In the studio, we have Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha, Gaurav Sinha. Uh, Gaurav, you know, you just came, I wanted you to come on. You came back. Uh, from a of a trip to India. India's right. been in the news a lot. There's been a lot going on, uh, a lot of geopolitics. There's a big election coming up. Uh, it has been one of the, it had been one of the big laggards in, you know, emerging markets, but it's sort of revitalized right. recently. So just right. I want you to come back and share some views uh, as you're very close to that. Yeah, of course. And thanks for having me on the show, Jared. But essentially, I've been living in New York since 2008 so almost 11 years and when we live in a you know in a, in a western hemisphere in a developed country it, it's hard to see like there there are not many changes on the ground it's pretty much same as it was 10 years ago so when you travel to a country like india after every one or two years, things are hard to recognize because they change so fast 2010 when i first went to india after being in the us uh, Delhi was connected through state-of-the-art subway system. You can even check your baggage, and that gets directly to an air, uh, you know airport to an airline, and you don't have to come to a terminal. That was a big change. 2012, when I went there, it was a smartphone revolution where everybody had smartphones, and not exactly iPhones, but you know something of a which is cheaper version of iPhone, but still it was a smartphone. Uh, 2014, it was essentially retail stores and supermarkets popping up. Now, India is traditionally like little, you know, uh, markets and bazaars. But now you had like big luxury uh, retail stores. Uh, 2017, it was airports in like smaller cities and a lot of domestic airlines connecting bigger cities to smaller cities. So the point that I'm trying to make is that this India as a country is actually growing a lot faster and you see these changes on the ground beyond just the noise of financial markets it's really heartening for me to see that when you travel on the ground you see all these changes happening which are a reflection of you know the broader changes in the economy and how fast this country is growing so what would you say you know when you think about what's going on in the markets where it was in the first few months of the year one of the laggards what's changed Right. I think, so f first off, markets never go up in a linear way. You know, there's always a lot of noise around the broader trend. I think the broader trend for India is upwards. Uh, however, having said that, there is a little bit of a caveat that I want to put out right up front is that India is now up due for its general elections. The dates were just announced last week. It's going to be from April 11th, uh, I think April 19th to May 11th, I beg your pardon. Uh, and then the results would be announced on May 23rd. Now, this is a truly phenomenal exercise because it's almost 1 billion voters. So that's the largest democratic exercise in the, on this planet anywhere. It's a $7 billion estimated expenses of the election, which is even more than the most expensive elections which we saw with the, you know, President Trump getting elected. There was $6.5 billion. So this is $7 billion. So it's, it's, it's an election of epic proportions. Um, my sense from being on the ground is that Prime Minister Modi has real good chances of coming back, much more than, you know, what he had few months ago. There has been a sudden surge in his popularity back again. But as with any elections, elections are all about arithmetic. And more than anything else, markets hate uncertainty. So for next few months, uh, I think as we run up closer to the final day, uh, there might be a little bit of volatility with as the trends and the exit polls and all these, you know, uh, various uh, um, uh, political analysts throwing out their opinions. But once all the dust is settled, I think India is all set for, you know, uh, um, long term growth here because some of the work that they have done on the ground now, whether it's financial changes, uh, the economic changes, socioeconomic changes, bringing everyone in the ambit of, you know, financial uh, um, broad financial umbrella, all of it is phenomenal. So I think the long-term trend is going to be f 
absolutely you know uh, much better than anywhere else we see broadly speaking in emerging markets having said that in the near term i think there might be a little bit of volatility now you should talk briefly that modi's become more popular but there's there was the skirmishes with pakistan right. and that was one of the things where modi came very tough right. um maybe to describe as you saw the sentiment there i mean that's is that one of the things you think is leading to popularity Yes uh for sure yes uh, so after implementing some of these uh you know financial reforms whether it's goods and services t- uh, taxes bill or whether it's demonetization where he scrapped 86% of floating currency in uh, 2016 all of these uh implementations while good for the economy in the long run actually hit small traders and you know average person on the street so therefore his popularity was kind of declining a little bit he still continues to be one of the most popular leaders but people were not happy with all the hard reforms that he had implemented now few months ago there was the terrorist attack in india and unlike a lot of previous leadership uh, uh, modi came out and used this to an extent as an opportunity to not just reply back and face the problem of terrorism which has really become a global problem right now but also it comes at an opportune time for him because you know it's an election season so he didn't want to be seen as a soft leader so he took like a real tough stand and it played out well for him so the narrative from you know talking about how the reforms have affected a normal person on the street has now shifted to more towards a national security and you know how we need like a strong tough leadership so it's it's definitely going to help modi uh the question is like can opposition change the narrative back to economy and then you know uh, the the unhappiness on the street with the inconvenience that people are having for the moment he seems to be back uh, in the game again now Which one are you going to jump um, in? Actually, I do have a question. So I know that uh, in China, the state uh, sector and the non-state-owned sector is pretty different, mainly because you know the state is indeed very controlling. So from your India point of view, like, are they also a different way of investing in India? No, I think this is a problem across emerging markets that you have like two, uh, you know, two investment choices: whether you want to invest in state-owned or market cap-weighted or ex-state-owned. Uh, I think it's a bit more amplified in case of China because a lot of things are state controlled and like 50% of Chinese market cap is state controlled uh, shops uh, uh, state controlled companies in case of India it is there but to a much more subdued extent uh, firms in India have a sovereign risk for sure if something happens to the currency to the government or the political you know economic uh, policy making that's going to impact uh, companies for sure but the state ownership of uh, pri- uh, of of listed companies in india is is not as high so having said that i would say that um, as with any other emerging markets extend out ex state owned exposure in india is much better mm-hmm. than a state owned uh, uh, you know exposure and this is especially true for financial sector because 75% of assets in financial sector in in india are essentially state owned banks so within financial sector it's bit more amplified in india india compared to a lot of other em countries whether china brazil is less state owned but you know that is a general problem i would say across uh, emerging across markets emerging market. okay Now, Gaurav, when you do, in addition to focusing on India for us, you do a lot of work on asset allocation, right. dynamic asset allocation, and you've done some different modeling on different risk-on and risk-off triggers on on how do you look at the markets. Do you want to sort of describe some of that process, and then we can talk about what some of the models you know talk about today? Right. Uh, so this goes back onto some of the research I was doing to how financial markets have changed in a post-quantitative easing world, and essentially what we found out was that um, after after financial crisis, every time uh, um, you know markets started going down, average correlations in in a given asset. Uh, so if you are talking about U.S. equities, then within U.S. equities, average correlations they kind of shot up, and then the uh federal uh federal reserves came out with the first qe qe1 and then immediately correlations relaxed and markets jumped up this trend kind of repeated every time when there were three respective qes and even in a post qe world uh, correlations have been kind of rising and 
the, uh, markets immediately afterwards have experienced a higher volatility. So there seems to be a link between uh, assets getting highly correlated and then that feeding into higher volatility uh, in following months. So that's the basic framework on which uh, sort of, you know, I'm trying to build a systematic approach to asset allocation where you look across assets um, what are the assets that are showing unusual signs in their uh, average correlations? And if there is a higher uh, unexpected jump in that number, then that probably is an asset class which is flashing red. And as a conservative to moderate uh, you know, investor, you want to be hedged out in that asset class. It's something similar to you know saying that you want to be swimming in uh, in a turbulent water. If there's a lot of turbulence uh, in a in a given uh, river, you don't want to be jumping into it and you know uh, swimming into that. So as a global asset allocator, uh, we are using correlations as a first set of signals to identify risk on and risk off in different asset classes, and then you overlay it with second or third set of indicators respective to that asset class. So within equities, it could be equity-specific indicators like momentum, volatility, and you know some other factors. For fixed income, it could be some other factors, or credit spreads, and you know shape of the yield curve. So the first set of indicator, which is the correlation, tells you whether it's a bullish or a bearish outlook, and the second and third set of indicators tells you how much overweight or underweight you want to be. And the second and third set of indicators are more linked to the asset class uh, uh, you know, um, that you, you are working on. That's a good general preview of that. So now where, when you look at this, um, where does that signal stand in, in March? Like how, is, how, coming into March, how did it look like uh, from an ask perspective? So we, we, we have been, I've been tracking that signal on a live basis starting January 2018. Uh, so for entire last year, we have been, you know, uh, I've been tracking it uh, for across equity markets. Uh, I saw a massive spike in uh, near-term correlations in U.S. equities in January 2018. And, and that essentially meant that there is something unusual happening within U.S. equities and there's a high systematic risk in the equities. So February 2018 is when we saw the massive spike in WIX, where on Feb 5th, WIX jumped by 100%. By the way, this this is an unusual event because it had never jumped before in its history of 30 years by 100 points. So 100%, sorry. So we were hedged out for the month of February, March, April. Then we went back in market again in May. And then we hedged out again in October 12th. So we again avoided the almost entire Q4 market correction that happened in 2018. So it played out really well last year. We avoided, if I would have been following this strategy on a live basis, we would have avoided a lot of market correction. Going into March, coming back to your question for this year, uh, it, it seems to be a risk on for most assets, except for small caps in general. So US small caps, it was hedged or it was showing a higher risk sentiments for US small caps, for EFI small caps, and for Japan uh, large cap equities. So those were the only three portions of the global equity markets where it was showing bit higher risk compared to everything else. And so when you think about these kind of models. I mean, certainly there's no indexes that we have live today that are doing that. But you're you're thinking about that as a custom dynamic allocation for people who are looking at different risk on risk off signals. It's something that that people can talk to you about. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think this is a sort of a you know an attempt to quantify an asset allocation decision. Um, you can overlay this quantitative approach with a qualitative overlay. Uh, in my opinion, this tends to work a bit better for tactical asset allocation framework because these signals can change quickly with, you know, more recent developments in markets. Um, but, you know, nobody can claim that they have the best model that works under all circumstances. So I would, of course, you know, try to overlay the quantitative uh, framework with a qualitative overlay and uh, use it more for tactical uh, asset allocation as of now. Now, there's a lot more research that we need to do to make sure that if we ex you know, go strategic, then can do we need to adapt the same framework and p tone down the frequency so it also works for low-frequency asset allocation uh, uh, you know, as well, as it has been working exceptionally well for a higher frequency or a tactical asset allocation. Yeah, in that tactical world, I mean, I know a lot of the trend-following approaches, there's a lot of moving average signals and things that cross over, cross under, 
and those get whipsawed quite often. I, mean, I think that's what happened at the end of last year. Some of those moving average risk on risk off signals got got out right after the fall, mm-hmm. and then then struggled to get back in. And so it's an interesting alternative to some of the traditional ways people look at that risk it, signal. If I can just add on to Jer uh, one quick comment on that. Uh, the problem with a lot of these technical signals is that they tend to be concurrent. You know, momentum goes up when market goes up. Volatility goes up when market goes down. The real uh, genius of a signal is if you can have some sort of a forward-looking guidance, right? So with correlations, what I found is that correlations going up does not immediately implies that market is going to go down next month. However, what it does imply that if at all market goes down, then you would have less places to rotate because everything is highly correlated within themselves. So stock selection would become much more difficult in a highly correlated environment. So you, you're better off doing asset allocation than stock selection when assets are highly correlated. So when you know these correlations are going up, that's a signal for you that you got to be more smarter with your mm. asset allocation and emphasize less on stock selection. And how do you do asset allocation? Either by implementing a hedging strategy or by bringing in something that reduces your market beta. That's the way to go uh, go about it. So the key is that finding signals that have some sort of a forward guidance and then switching between asset allocation and stock selection, overweighting which you know uh, technique more over the other. That's what I'm trying to still explore and see if we, we are heading in the right direction or not. It seems to be working really well for last year. We'll see for for future. Yeah, no, it's one of the more interesting signals that I see and, and follow. So thanks for, for all that and, and that background. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. And you're listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132. Talking with Jay Hatfield, founder, portfolio manager, CEO of Infracap, an investment advisor who manages exchange traded funds, series of hedge funds. Uh, and Jay holds an MBA in finance from the Wharton School. So glad to talk to a, another Wharton guy, Jay. Uh, thanks for coming on our program. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your firm and and how you got started to, to, found, the, to found the firm. <clears throat> well, I uh, was working at SAC Capital as a portfolio manager doing uh, MLPs and credit there, and left with some seed funding from Steve Cohen to launch uh, some hedge funds. But that was in '08, <clears throat> and so the markets were disrupted in terms of raising new capital, except for uh, companies. So um, a friend of mine, Mike Crimble, who was the founder of uh, Energy Transfer Partners, and I um, st- uh, started to work on launching an MLP. And we successfully got that public um, a couple of years later. That's NGL. And um, he's running that company in Tulsa. And then after that, we formed the advisor and then launched um, our first. We had a couple of hedge funds launched our first um, MLP fund and then a couple of credit funds we launched a couple of years ago. So that was the genesis of the firm. And so how do you think? So you've, you've done some you now the wide spectrum from hedge funds to uh, sort of exchange traded funds and the individual MLPs. Like, how do you think about the opportunity size? Where your, you know, the the different reasons to go after each each market there. Well, when it comes to uh, mutual funds and interacting with advisors and retail, we um, try to be a hundred percent income focused. We think that too many retail investors get caught up in the kind of casino mentality of the stock market. And don't focus on the fact that almost all companies are cash flow positive and many pay significant dividends and you can invest in fixed income and you can construct portfolios that have reasonable risk and and good um, cash returns and where you can be long term focused and just reallocate you know quarterly or what have you so that's what we try to be hundred percent focused on uh, in the on the mutual fund business, which is really our key focus right now. On the hedge fund business, uh, I guess we implicitly um, agree with um, Goroff that you know a critical element is is um, market timing and being you know being long when the market's going up and and not very long when it's highly volatile and correlated. So <clears throat> we tend to be pretty opportunistic in our hedge funds in terms of putting on exposure and taking it off, which of course we don't do. 
um, as much. <laughs> we have run a little bit of leverage, so we will take our leverage down. But we don't. Obviously, people are looking for the exposure, so they don't want want um, you know mutual funds to go to 100% cash by any means. Yeah, and in terms of the MLP space in general and the energy opportunity set, like how are you thinking about the developments? You know, at a high level, just sort of talk about the, the development in that market and and where where you see the these sort of opportunities. Well, we're pretty bullish about oil, um, generally speaking. Uh, people kind of forget that it has beta, so they always, you know, when it went down last quarter, they kind of assumed that it was Armageddon. But, you know, it does have um, have pretty significant um, sensitivities to demand and supply, so there's really pretty little chance that, or like, WTI will be significantly below 50. And the reason for that is strong... Um, U.S. sensitivity to price. So um, we're seeing that now where there's pretty strong demand for gasoline as we head into the driving season. And then, of course, probably a little bit more importantly, OPEC was overproducing last quarter, really somewhat at the behest of the U.S. administration um, to offset the sanctions against Iran. And now they're um, cutting back production and uh, inventories are coming down. So we're pretty bullish about oil. And also, even though it shouldn't really occur because the market's supposed to be efficient, <clears throat> normally energy stocks do better as we head into the driving season. They normally do well in the second and third quarter. So we see that kind of unfolding now where we're about to head into the spring driving season. Energy stocks are pretty depressed and market stable. So we're pretty bullish about the sector. <clears throat> and then, of course, the U.S. is the lowest cost marginal producer of oil. So we we're bullish about volumes in the U.S., which will be good for infrastructure slash MLP companies and refiners. So I would think it's setting up pretty well after being dislocated last quarter after the after the um, crash or, or market, significant market decline. How do you think about the sort of beta of the MLPs to oil? I mean, there are a lot of people who said, oh, they're not tied to the oil price at all. They're this sort of very... Um, they sort of have contracts. They're not tied to the oil price. I mean, how do you think about that beta to oil of of the sort of pipelines and the infrastructure? Well, their their um, their non correlation to oil was really overstated. Yeah, and the, there's two places that showed up. First of all, they have it's it's declined over time. But five years ago, or or four years ago, I guess when the when the oil market crashed, most larger MLPs probably had ten to twenty percent direct. Uh, exposure to commodities that's declined now partly just got wiped out number one and then number two they've hedged it or changed their contracts but more most importantly though a lot of people use the toll road analogy which i never really loved but it actually it's kind of appropriate in that when you say toll road you know a lot of us live near 95 so we say oh my god you know that's that's low risk but of course you need traffic and there are toll roads that go bankrupt because they don't have adequate traffic. So what happened to the MLPs is they were they're not really super commodity sensitive within a band. So if oil had gone from 100 to 90, they would have been fine. But when it went to 20 or close to that, volumes dropped dramatically. So the traffic on the toll roads, if you will, if you want to use that analogy, dropped. And the companies didn't lose all their cash flow, but it became a big headwind. And then they had to, and their marketing businesses became you know, lost all their margin, and then, you know, contracts started to roll off, and they had to, to recontract re at lower prices. So it became a big headwind. Now, though, the, there's a big tailwind because there's much higher volumes, and the companies have restructured. So now they're actually in good to great position, yet investors haven't really come around to it yet, for obvious reasons, because it was, it's been a long five years of declining volumes and restructuring. And how would you think about if you're if you're talking to clients about just the opportunity in the MLP space generally? Like, how would you say it compares to other areas, things that you're sort of excited about in in the income markets? How do you? Well, it's it's a it's a little bit. Um, it sort of has two elements to it. First of all, it is in our model showed being pretty significantly undervalued, whereas probably REITs and utilities are pretty fully valued. But we are bullish about interest rates, so they're probably going to be fine. So we think there's a pretty significant opportunity, but we always recommend that that people, that investors undersize MLP allocations 
because they are significantly, even though they have high income, they do have high betas. So they're correlated to energy and energy to oil, rather, and oil is highly correlated to the stock market. So should really assume, you know, a beta of one or even higher in a market decline. So we, if you're 5% in utilities, we always recommend people being two and a half in MLPs or less in dollar cost averaging because it is a volatile asset class. But we think that it's, that it's on the efficient frontier from an allocation perspective if you want income. And so we recommend, you know, uh, undersized positions in MLPs. Let me just reintroduce our, our guest here. We're talking with Jay Hatfield, founder, CEO, portfolio manager at InfraCap, investment advisor focused on MOPs and other sort of income-oriented securities. Uh, Lee Chen, you want to jump in here? Hi, Jay. Um, I actually don't know this space very well. So in terms of MLP, I only heard a very little. Um, is it like the tax advantage used to be very high, but there are some changes in tax law that might make it little bit less and how do you guys you know kind of uh, work around that well the, the taxation is is um, complex um, I have a, f- a friend who works at the IRS who said that partnership taxation is the most complicated uh, tax area at least in the United States <clears throat> but so there's kind of there's sort of two elements of that there was a FERC ruling that um, limited some deduction of uh, corporate income taxes in um, rate cases, but then that was relaxed. And then the companies were, most of the companies were able to structure around that, um, either convert to a corporation for a few of them or just go through a rate case because rate cases are complicated. So there's kind of that FERC issue, which I don't think is that material right now. The second thing that was um, made MLPs less attractive on a relative basis a little bit it's just the corporate tax rate going from 35 to 21, but there is still partnership pass-through. And then um, from our perspective, though, it was mildly positive because our funds, our MLP funds structured as a corporation, so we actually benefited from that drop. So it's actually pretty complicated. Um, what investors should know is if they do buy the stocks individually versus through some of the ETFs, then you will get a what's called a K-1, the partnership return. Unless you have um, a tax preparer and you know fairly complicated tax return, that's likely to cost you extra for the preparation of your tax return and and add significant complexity to your tax return. Hey, Jay, this is Gaurav. Um, so I'm also not an expert on this space, but from what I read in here, we as a country have been becoming so much energy efficient, and and you know every every time you see like new uh, alternative energy uh, companies coming up and so generally speaking like do you see um, alternative energy as a potential you know competitor for the traditional energy and more specifically how does it you know impacts MLPs in the long run you know um, I wish that were true I I started working on uh, renewables about 30 years ago when I was at Morgan Stanley Mm -hmm and um, did some of the first uh, financings. But the problem is just that the um, penetration rate is slow. Obviously, that was a long time ago, and they're still relatively low. And so, um, and the, also the geography can be challenging. Like in the right. east, it's much more difficult to site wind and solar than it is in the west. Wind is actually is quite a nuisance for um, residential areas. So we think there'll be continued uh, penetration on that side. But what that real, and in fact, that's actually kind of required, though, in the sense that, you know, the the global economy on a nominal basis probably growing still about 3 or 4%, you, you know, mostly driven by the U.S., but energy demand for oil is only, only going up by about 1%. So you actually even need all of those uh, efficiencies, LEDs and others, just to keep the um, energy intensity dropping over time, and so we don't have skyrocketing demand. We actually have pretty relatively sluggish demand. A lot of actually is driven by, um, you know, your area of expertise, like India and China, where penetration of automobiles is rising. Again, slowed down by the fact that, particularly in China, a lot of them are going to be electric, but still the penetration rates are a fraction um, of or order of magnitude less than they are in the U.S., so that's still driving net demand, and I guess most people don't think we'll have peak oil demand for 20 or 30 years, you know, close to when we have peak population 
Right. And another buzzword these days is electric cars. Do you think electric cars may have some sort of an impact? Yes, of course. The, you know, at the margin, those are those are going to help our energy intensity. Um, what a lot of people forget is that you know electric cars use electricity, and electricity uses uh, right now at least primarily um, natural gas. And the other thing that people forget is that the, probably the lowest hanging fruit would be to eliminate coal-fired electricity. And of course, U.S. MLPs don't. There's only one, and we don't um, invest in it. Don't don't traffic in coal. So the first thing that should be done, really, and should be focused on, which is unfortunate, it hasn't been. Bloomberg has, but is to eliminate um, coal-fired generation because not only bad from a CO2 perspective, but horrific in terms of mercury and SOX and NOx. So it's just a really social negative. And so that's about still about 35% of U.S. generation. So that has to go away, and it's most likely to be replaced by a little bit of renewables, but most more natural gas. So that so there's not a lot of scenarios where um, not all carbon-based fuels, but certainly natural gas and oil, continue to have slow demand growth over the next 20 years. We're talking with Jay Hatfield, who is the founder CEO of InfraCap. Uh, and Jay, so I know you guys focus on beyond MLPs. You also focus on other higher income securities and the preferred space. Uh, maybe sort of talk about the way the traditional preferred indexes have been established and sort of some of the different ways that you think about uh, that that space. Well, we we focus on we like listed securities because they're lower risk when it comes to uh, market downturns, because there's the liquidity usually drops. I used to trade high yield, and since you're trading with Wall Street and they're under under um, pressure when, in down markets, then the liquidity will drop. So we prefer the listed $25 preferred space. And we, can, we think that can be quite attractive. The only issue with a passive fund <coughs> um, that tracks preferreds is that um, a lot of them don't have any features that deal with the call. Provision so retail twenty five dollar preferred their callable at par it's twenty five after five years and so that's one reason one solution um, is to have active management and to deal with that so when we look at preferreds we always look at the yield to call and that way you know end up buying securities that are trading significantly above par callable at par. And and there's you know the preferreds tend to be concentrated in a few particular industries. Like, is there a group um, you know the, the sort of REIT preferred is an example of one that you think is sort of special versus the general preferred part of the market? Yeah, we think that REIT preferreds are generally um, good full cycle credits because they are structured to not be um, have, not have significant leverage. The investment banks. You know, sort of got burned. You know, this is years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, when REITs first came out, and they had too much leverage. So they typically um, required the companies to have modest leverage, like 40 percent. And when you're 40 percent levered, that means that there's pretty significant excess um, leverage capacity in the real estate. So oftentimes, those companies will have unlevered real estate, and then the preferreds, in effect, become sort of the first creditor calling on that. So we think those are good full cycle investments. Um, also, MLPs are increasingly issuing preferreds, and we think those are good credits and usually trade at pretty wide spreads. And um, also, mortgage REITs, too, seem to have wide spreads that are above you know, what we would judge as their, their uh, credit risk, partly just because the common yield so much that retail investors demand more from the preferreds. So we think there's a lot of, of uh, opportunities for, for investors or for active managers to seek out you know, good um, risk-return um, trade-offs in the preferreds. What we don't like, though, is we don't like distressed preferred investing. So we want good, good to great credits because in bankruptcy you know, preferreds are dealt with you know, their, their junior securities, you know, their stocks, so they could often be wiped out. If you're going to do distress, you'd be secured senior secured. 
And what is the total size of that reaper for market? When you think about the opportunity for people and, and how to compare it, size it, you mentioned sort of sizing MLPs, maybe half of a traditional utilities allocation. Um, when you think about real estate, I think if you look at like the S&P 500, maybe it's 3% of uh, the S&P 500 tends to be in the real estate sector. How would you think about the preferred element? In- you know, it's 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 liquid and um, growing. It's, a, it's about $150 billion, but it is growing pretty substantially. Um, because REITs do, from a credit perspective, do, do get a lot of credit from the rating agencies for issuing preferred. And they do like to, you know, since they're dealing with relatively thin margins and low cap rates, that can make the, the difference between, you know, an, an economic project versus an economic project. So we think that's going to continue to grow. So that's, we think it's continuing to be a robust sector for, for uh, preferred issuance. And any sort of any commentary on the on the industry generally, like where you're investing your time beyond these uh, these sort of areas that we talked about today? Well, we just we we continue to be pretty bullish about um, interest rates. Not so much that Treasuries are a great buy, but that they're range bound, and that's something if you're going to invest in preferreds, you really need to focus on because they are um, almost all of them are perpetual, so they effectively get priced off thirty year. And so, you know, they have a little bit of interest rate risk, a little bit of credit risk, but you have to be cognizant of that interest rate risk. So we think that we're range-bound. We've thought that for a while. And so if that we're correct about that, then preferreds would be an attractive asset class to, to look at. And they do have some um, tax advantages. There, A lot of the dividends end up being qualified, or and re, re preferred dividends get um, some tax breaks, and some MLP dividends get tax breaks. So... We think it's an attractive sector for investors to look at, either on their own or through ETFs. Very good. We've been talking with Jay Hatfield, founder, portfolio manager, CEO of InfraCap, an investment advisor who manages exchange-traded funds, series of hedge funds. Jay, thank you so much for joining us on the conversation today. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha, Gaurav Sinha, Associate Director of Modern Alpha, and Asset Allocation here at Wisdom Tree. You can listen to us at Behind the Markets Podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets Podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.